Lord, pour into our hearts such love towards you that we, loving you in all things and above all things, may obtain your promises which exceed all that we can desire through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. I don't know about you, but one of the things I like to do is listen to the soundtrack to musicals. And one of my favorites to listen to is a classic uh, called The Fiddler on the Roof. I know most of you will probably be familiar with it. And one of the songs that's particularly insightful, I think, is a song that goes on between Tevia, the main husband, main character, and his wife, Goldie, the other main character. And um, they're looking at how things are changing around them. Their children are being married, and um, I won't give away the rest of the musical, but they're having this back and forth song. And it's a love song, but it's not a typical love song. Tevia says to Goldie, I'm asking you a question. Do you love me? And Goldie, the wife, answers, you're a fool. But he continues, I know, but do you, do you love me? Goldie's wife answers, do I love you? For 25 years, I've washed your clothes, cooked your meals, cleaned your house, given you children, milked the cow. After 25 years, why talk about love right now? What does it mean to love? What does it mean to love? What does it mean to love God? What does it mean to love God? I think we're going to pause and ask that question this morning. And as we ask that, I want to point out four different things that I think come to us. First of all, that the love of God is unlike any other. Second of all, the love of God is in, first, our belief, and second, our trust and following Jesus. Third of all, the love of God entails obeying Jesus' words. And fourth of all, to love God, we must first embrace God's love towards us. All right? So the love of God is unlike any other. To love God, we must first believe, trust, and follow Jesus. To love God, we must obey Jesus' words. And finally, to love God first, we must embrace God's love. We started... This, we started the service this morning with the collect of the day that we all prayed together, and we just prayed it again at the beginning of the sermon. It goes like this, pour into our hearts such love towards you that we, loving you in all things and above all things, may obtain your promises which exceed all of our desires. All we can desire, actually. That prayer, as you reflect on it, aside from being beautifully written, is both humble in its neediness and ridiculous in its boldness. It's humble in its neediness and ridiculous in its boldness. Think about what you just prayed. 
What are we praying? That God would pour into our hearts such love towards him. Incredibly needy. Lord, I cannot even love you on my own. What else is it saying? It's incredibly bold. That I can love you in all things and above all things. That I can love you in all things and above all things. Think about what that actually means. That means anything that comes into our life, I love God more. Anything that we're passionate about, well, I'm passionate about that, but I love God more. Anything that I see as part of myself, well, I love those attributes, but I love God more. Do you see how bold that is? How bold that is. And how impossible that is without that love being gifted to us, being poured into us, that imagery. But we struggle with that, right? The world struggles with that too because the love of God is unlike any other kind of love. First of all, the love of God by definition has to be unique. The Bible says it, and actually, if we think about it, logic proves it out, okay? Think about Deuteronomy 6, 4, where we're told, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. What's the next part of that? Jesus quotes it, and you said it at the beginning of the service today. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. There's a little bit of variance on those translations, right? So that's the challenge. And how do we love someone that we can't compare with anything else? St. Thomas Aquinas writes on that subject in his Summa Theologica. Now, this is really dense. Don't get lost. I'm going to read it to you. I don't expect you to comprehend it all, because I certainly don't without digging into it. But listen. Consequently, St. Thomas says, humanity and man are not wholly identical, but humanity is taken to mean the formal part of a man because the principles whereby a thing is defined are regarded as the formal constituent in regard to the individualized matter. Okay, what's he saying there? He's saying that mankind is different from each man or woman that you would run into, right? The subject of mankind is a category. It's a theory, right? We all participate in that category, right? But it's different than me. I, I am not mankind, right? And you are not mankind. We're part of something greater. He continues, on the other hand, it's not composed of matter and form in which individualization is not due to individual matter. That is to say this. Matter is the form, the very form being individualized in themselves. It is necessary, the form themselves should be subsisting. Supposita is the Latin, I think. Therefore, suppositum and nature in them are identified. All right, skip over that. Final part. Since God, then, is not composed of matter and form, he must be his own Godhead, his own life, and whatever else is thus predicated of him. What's St. Thomas saying there? 
He's saying, look, God is not part of a category. By logical implication, he cannot be part of a category. There is not the category of gods, and then we plug in God, as we know God. That's a logical impossibility. Why? Because God is unique. He's the only one like him. He is pure activity, pure spirit. The Godhead is its own category, right? It'd be like if you as a human being were the only human being ever. You would be mankind. You would be humanity. God is like that. Now, why am I going through all this rigmarole? Because the love of God is unique logically because of that. Just see. We can compare the love of God to other things. We can make analogies, but the love of God is something altogether on its own because God is altogether on his own. The Godhead's unique. Now let's turn to the scripture. St. John says it this way, much easier, I think. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, he says, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. Why? Follow John's logic. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. You see what the apostle is saying. If you can't love the person next to you, if you can't love the individual part of humanity, you can't love God. It's easy to love the person next to you. Think about that for a minute. Those of you that are married, those of you that are in relationships, those of you that have neighbors, those of you that go to work and have coworkers, it's easy to love the person next to you who you see. That familiarity also makes it terribly difficult, doesn't it? Yeah. And John is saying here, well, look, as hard as that is, loving God is harder. Loving God is harder. Because you can see that person. You can talk to that person. You can interact with that person. And yeah, that cuts both ways sometimes. <laughs> we'll admit it. But loving God is harder. Why is the logic here? Let's go with the why it's easier. Well, uh, or why loving the person next to us is easier. Well, with the sister or father or coworker or mother or girlfriend or spouse or child, we have some idea what love means, right? Let's take a spouse. You try to make her life easier. You try to please her. You try to make her laugh once in a while. You take out the garbage, you empty the dishwasher, even though you're tired when you come home from work. Right? You talk to her. How about other family members? Well, you make phone calls to them. You visit them once in a while. You care about what's going on in their life. And you might even give advice to them if they ask for it. How about God? By contrast, God doesn't need me to make his life any easier. God doesn't require that I please him or that I make him laugh or that I empty, out, empty the dishwasher. He, he doesn't need me to care about what his day's like. 
the hardships he went through. And I'm sure that he would not ever need me to give him advice, though sometimes I impertinently tried to do so. God doesn't require, or rather God does require, that I worship him, however. And he goes through great pains of sending Jesus to die on the cross so that I can not just worship him, but also love him. So that I can also love him. Look with me at the gospel passage, John 14, verse 21, which is on the back of your inserts, or if you have your Bible with you, I invite you to open it up. John 14, verse 21. What does Jesus say? Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him is what Deacon Mark read to us. But in order to understand what's going on here, we've got to look further back into the chapter. What's going on in chapters 13 and 14 in John's Gospel? Does anybody know? What point in Jesus' life is this? If you have your Bible open, you can just look at the subtitles. What's going on here? I can't hear because of the fan. You'll have to yell out. He is wrap, he's wrapping things up. Okay. Well, maybe part, partly, yeah. What's going on in his life? Is this before or after his death on the cross? Before. This is before his death upon the cross, right? Yeah, it's after the Last Supper. Right. It's after the Last Supper. So Jesus has talked to his apostles about how he's going to die, rise, and return, and ascend to God's right hand. And that's the context here of this conversation. The apostles want to follow Jesus. If we look back at John 13, 36, we see this interchange. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And of course, then Jesus tells Peter that he will, in fact, not yet, but deny him first. But he wants to follow Jesus. Second of all, the apostles want to believe in Jesus. Look earlier in chapter 14. Verse 8, we read this. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? So do you see, once again, the context after following Jesus is believing in Jesus, and it's only after that that they can love Jesus. That they can love Jesus. There's a lot of confusion about this in the world, right? There's a lot of confusion about this in the church amongst Christians. 
Here's some of the things that you'll hear. Maybe you can identify with this or have heard it. There's lots of people that say things like this. They think that to love God means just to believe in him, just to believe he exists, rather. They say, well, I believe in God. I think that he's up there watching over me. He's guiding my, my life. That's not loving God. It's different. Some people think that to love God is just to be moral. They say things like, well, I believe in God and I'm a good person. I do mostly the right things. Right? That's not loving God. It's important, but not loving God. Some people think that to love God, you have to be an ally of God, right? To take a position on his side. I'm a Christian. I push back against the secular culture. I go to church and I support Christian organizations, things with a Christian worldview. That's not loving God. That's an important thing, but it's not loving God. Some people think that to love God is to be an ally of the oppressed. They say things like, I'm for the disenfranchised and the underdog. I want fair treatment for those who can't speak for themselves. That's not loving God. It's a good thing. But by itself, it's not loving God. Why not? All of those things are good things. But taken by themselves, they're missing something. They're just a higher or nobler version of, one might, of what one might try to do with one's spouse. They're just better versions of taking out the garbage or emptying the dishwasher. I'm doing this for you. Right? It's kind of ridiculous when we phrase it that way. But so many people view their relationship with God this way. And it's sad. Because it's not what Jesus is talking about here. They're missing something. You can't love God by doing him a favor. You can't love God just doing him a favor. You know, I'll run into people that say, well, you know, I've been in church for three weeks in a row. And I say, well, well, great. So, love the Lord your God with all of your mind, your heart, your soul. You already owed that to him. You're not doing him a favor. Even more ridiculous is the idea that somehow God needs an ally or a helper. That somehow God needs us to accomplish his will in the world, right? That God needs an agent for him to act. So what is the way to love God? First and foremost to believe in Jesus, to believe that Jesus and the Father are one. Secondly, to follow him, of course, is entailed in that, but secondly, to follow the commandments or the words of Jesus. Seems so simple. But look closely at what Jesus says. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. You might be tempted to see that as doing things for God. But that's not at all what Jesus is saying. And in fact, if Jesus was to say that, we would all be shafted. There's no way to do that. There's no way to love God above all other things on our own. 
It's impossible. Know what Jesus says precisely. And this is where it's important to look at Scripture and to dig into it. What does he say? Whoever has my commandments and keeps them. The Greek word for this, have, is exo. It means to possess already. To hold fast to something you already have. That's the word has this. Whoever keeps them. Then to obey them. Now if you think we're reading too much into this, look at verse 23. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him, and we will come to him, and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. What's Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying that it's God himself that helps us keep himself. It sounds like a paradox, and that's because it is. It's because we cannot even love God without God first loving us and giving us the ability to love God, you see. How do we have the ability to love God? Well, we keep going. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, given to us in baptism, is here promised by Jesus to teach and bring to remembrance all things, right? Now, the apostles are going to have to have this specifically because they've got to the great task of writing the New Testament, right? And so they're going to need the Holy Spirit to bring to remembrance all the things that Jesus has said. And they're also empowered by Jesus in John 20 and Acts 2 to guard the faith, to pass the faith along. While the apostles are going to die, the Holy Spirit remains with the church and gives to us the ability to obey and thus to love God more and more. But we have a choice in whether to ask for and embrace the Holy Spirit's help and teaching or to try to love God in our own way. And that's the problem with so many people, both Christians and non, that they try to love God in their own way instead of loving God for who He is. Again, those of you that are in a relationship, what happens when you try to do something for your spouse to love him or her, but it's not their idea of love? Does it work? Honey, I spent $100 on roses for you. If I did that with Leah, wouldn't work too well. She'd be mad that I spent the $100, (laughs) right? We have to love God as God wants us to love him. And to be able to love God, he has to both instruct and empower us to do so you see. We love because he first loved us. So St. Gregory says this, the Spirit pleads, rousing those whom he fills to plead. 
Isn't that a wonderful turn of phrase? This Holy Spirit, please, rousing those whom he fills to plead. What's that mean? It means that if the Holy Spirit's in you as a Christian, the Holy Spirit is pleading for you to plead to the Father. Right? Saying, Lord, thy will be done, not my will. Lord, thy priorities be accomplished, not my priorities. Lord, let me see your will and then give me the ability to love you so that I can be in your will. That's what that means. In our own personal prayer life, though, how often do we start with, Lord, I'd like you to do this, 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 and this. Oh, yeah, and I'm thankful for that. Rather than saying, Lord, fill me with your love so that I can love you. We always want to jump to the action, right? But is that the most important thing? Jesus' words say no that the action arises out of a state of being. To first have his commandments is to love him so that we can follow him, so that we can obey him. It's better in God's eyes to be than to do. It's better in God's eyes to be in Christ than to do outside of Christ. Do you see? But for the Christian, of course, to be in Christ ends up accomplishing many things because God's will doesn't allow us to just remain stationary. But don't short-circuit the system. It's something that we can work in every day. His love is that. Something we can work in every day, but it's not something we can work it's something we can embrace and work in but not something we can work for like all good gifts it's ultimately a gift that God delights to give us and promises to supply it can be daily accepted or rejected by the Christian so do you love God? if you do ask for more It's not like a marriage or a relationship where you've got two equal people. But it originates completely with God, in the Godhead. And it's given lavishly, it's promised lavishly through Jesus here. And it's like any other relationship, unlike any other relationship rather, that you can have. Let's return to that musical and the end of the song. Tevye says... I know that, but do you love me? His wife says, do I love him? For 25 years, I've lived with him, fought with him, starved with him. 25 years, my bed is his. If that's not love, what is? Tevia says, then you love me. And she says, I suppose I do. He says, I suppose I love you too. Do you love God? This week, think and meditate on that. Do I love God? Do I let him love me? Do I ask for more love? Pray with me that he might fill us with more love for him. 
Lord Jesus Christ, we give you thanks that you have died on the cross for us, that you showed us the ultimate sign of your love and of the Father's love. Lord, we ask that you would pour into our hearts more, that your Holy Spirit would be active and alive, causing us to desire those things that you would have us desire and not those things that we would desire for ourselves. Remain with us and fill us now until we see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen.